Hello everyone, welcome to the 42nd live episode of Ask Abhijit. As you know, today we discuss science, astrophysics and technology and all that. So let us see who all we have with us. I can see Somnath, Parth, Yash, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Prithvi, Pinky Kumari, Abhijit, Nair, Ojaswa, Ananta, Arpan, Gaurav, Aryan, Devi, Gurav, Parshuram, Gurav, Manu Manoj, Samir Patro, Chiching, Prakash, Kiran, Chandana, Anand, Cherry, Omkar, Dr. Dharmaraj, Ghodke, Neha, Anthony, and so many other people. Gaurav, Neeraj Kumar Singh, Prithviram. Good evening, good day to everybody. Great to be with you. Great to see you all. Thank you for being here. And let's get into it with question number one. So, question number one is by Chiching. Why does the Earth spin and can we send humans to Venus? So to understand why the Earth spins, why other planets spin and why does the solar system spin, etc. We have to understand how the solar system was formed. So the solar system was formed uh, several billion years ago from a large, from an enormous cloud of gas. And this cloud of gas started uh, spinning around its overall center of mass slowly over the millions and billions of years. It started spinning around and parts of it started coalescing together. And these were the uh, seeds of the future planets of the solar system. And at the center of this enormous whirling cloud of gas, you had a big concentration of, of gas and other material around the center of mass, which became eventually our star, the sun. And once it had sufficient mass, it was able to ignite nuclear fusion within itself. So that is how the solar system formed. It's formed out of an enormous spinning cloud of gas. And these local coalescences of mass also were spinning from the very beginning. That's how gravity happens. That's how gravity works. When uh, there is a concentration of mass in any place, it attracts other mass towards itself. And that always goes in the form of a spinning uh, formation, right? So everything was spinning from the very beginning. And that is why the Earth spins, because after everything cooled down and after all these billions of years, that original rotational motion still persists because of the force of, because of the law of inertia and all that. So that is the reason why the Earth spins, the Moon spins, the planets revolve around the Sun, the Sun itself spins, the solar system, the entire uh, solar system itself spins, revolves around the Sun. And it's why the galaxy itself, our Milky Way galaxy itself, spins. And our sun goes around the center of mass of the galaxy. So this is the reason why the Earth spins. It is the inherent, uh, it's, it's what comes out of the force of gravity. The force of gravity causes such accumulations and concentrations of masses to spin around the center of mass. So that is why this phenomenon is observed. This is why it occurs. Now, can we send humans to Venus? It is possible to send humans to Venus. We have the technological capability, the know-how to do that. We have chemical rockets, which would take a few months to reach Venus. And it is certainly possible. It is not beyond our capability to ensure that 
a human being or a number of human beings could be transported there safely and even brought back safely the question is can humans live on Ma- on venus and can humans even go to the surface of the planet and come back safely and as of today that is almost impossible because the conditions on the planet are quite hellish the atmospheric pressure on the surface of venus is several hundred times the atmospheric pressure on the earth i think it's around 300 times earth's atmospheric pressure if i'm not mistaken and the temperature is also very very high it's like in the hundreds of degrees centigrade so it is so hot and so um, and the pressure is so high that a metal like lead would probably melt on the surface of the planet so it's it's not possible to send humans to the surface of venus as of today we can certainly send humans in orbit around venus and most likely bring them back safely so that is what we can achieve as of today venus is of course uh, quite close to earth, the earth that's why it, it is possible to send humans to the planet have a few orbits done there and then maybe bring them back that's what we can achieve as of today question 2 by ajay do you think the coronavirus is engineered perfectly so that it can attack people only with certain dna because we don't see the delta strain in pakistan or china but you see it in india or the, in the us well you are right your observation is right it does seem to be well somehow targeted uh, geographically somehow because certain strains uh, strains are seen they are prevalent in certain countries in certain geographical regions for example if you look at india you have the delta strain if you look at the us you have the delta strain but if you cross over the border to pakistan you don't see this i mean there's not much of a problem there if you cross over to bangladesh you don't see it if you cross over to sri lanka you don't see much of an issue as far as i know i have not really been been tracking the situation in sri lanka but as far as i know there doesn't seem to be much of an issue there the way we have it in india again cross over to burma cross over to tibet there's not much of an issue so it's clear that it seems to be targeted into the at the geography of india again the same thing with the united states in the past we had certain places like uh, certain nations in uh, in europe for example italy and in france and the uk where you had a very high mortality rate more than 10% of the of the infected people were dying in the beginning in the first quarter the first half of 2020 if i recall correctly and the same thing wasn't seen anywhere else so it it is quite apparent quite obvious that there does seem to be some kind of targeting of certain populations of certain geographical regions at certain times and that does give the impression that this is an engineered virus and the, whoever is tinkering with the genetic makeup of this virus seems to have found some way of specifically targeting certain ethnicities or certain geographies or certain uh, uh, certain population groups with, with with a certain kind of dna apparently it does look like it is that way so yes it is uh, it is in my opinion quite likely that this could be a bioengineered virus and new strains come out from time to time you have the first wave then the second wave now they are talking about a third wave right they are already talking about the third wave a third wave in autumn of this year right now we are in september autumn is like october onwards october november those two two three months so they are talking about a third wave and maybe some new strain so it's like 
it's like someone's releasing these these various strains of the virus these mutated new mutated forms of the virus it looks like that of course we do know that viruses mutate on their own that is well known but then if they mutate they would not target specific geographies or specific populations selectively so that is what makes it look very curious and very fishy so i agree this is very curious and it doesn't seem to be a natural phenomenon ritesh asks till well till when can we expect this disgusting covid time to end it's been 2 years now and this terror doesn't end well i had the i had said this a few months ago i think in in ranveer's show that this is going to be the decade of the virus it's not ending anytime soon new strains new variants of the virus are coming out every few months and uh, you know it's it's like it's a never ending cycle we thought that 2020 was the bad year well 2021 is just the same and even in populations in countries that are almost like where the majority of the people are vaccinated you're still seeing the virus affecting people it's as if the vaccine well it's it's pointless almost like that so take some country for example israel israel i think uh, more than half the people have been vaccinated by now maybe 70% if i am if i recall correctly i'm not very sure and yet you have this big problem of, of people falling ill because of the virus so it looks like you need one dose then you need another dose of the vaccine now there are there is talk of certain vaccines having three doses now there are certain companies that there are going to offer uh pills that you have to ingest twice a day in addition to taking the vaccine it's like a never ending cycle so it looks like there'll be more and more strains that come out and as long as the virus exists we have to be under lockdown forever essentially so it looks like this is going to be the decade of the virus and so whom does the virus benefit it does benefit pharmaceutical companies western pharmaceutical companies who sell vaccines for profit so one dose is not enough uh, sell two doses if two doses uh, you want to make some more money sell a third dose as well make it mandatory make the politicians ensure that the people have to take three doses otherwise they are not allowed to go anywhere you know and politicians the world over whether it's in north america whether it's europe whether it's australia whether it's asia politicians the world over are the same kind of people they love power they are power hungry people they are money hungry people the majority of politicians i'm not saying all politicians are like that but the majority of politicians we know how they are the the entire world over they love power as of today they have gained so much power over the people of the of the world they can ask people to stay indoors they can ask people to wear masks they can ask people to dance around in circles and people will have to do it right so this is the kind of power they have not had for a for centuries for at least a century and politicians are power hungry they don't want to give this power up so now that they have this power to mandate all kinds of nonsense they will be very loath to give it up so they may keep on ensuring that something or the other goes wrong and we have to stay indoors we have to stay under lockdown various forms of lockdown arbitrary lockdowns whenever they want and just keep on making the world dance their, to the tunes that's what most politicians love and that could be one factor apart from the pharmaceutical ind- industry factor that ensures that for many years to come we will be under some form of lockdown so i don't see this 
this age of the virus to end anytime so i don't see it ending anytime soon i think this entire decade is going to be like that and perhaps the world has changed forever we will never have the freedoms perhaps that we had until until 2020 you know those freedoms may be a thing of the past vaccine passports may become mandatory you will not be allowed to go to a cinema hall unless you are vaccinated unless you had your two or three doses of the vaccine and you've paid for that you may not be allowed to go to restaurants you may not be able, allowed to get on a plane you may not be allowed you may not get, get a visa for another country unless you are you demonstrate that you have taken the vaccine and maybe the indian vaccine won't be allowed you have to take the some other vaccine which they like you know which which b- b- brings them money so that's the kind of nonsensical era we have entered you know everything is commercialized everything is monetized and uh, so so that's where we are today i don't see this ending anytime soon this may be the entire decade of the vaccine unfortunately avinash says if humans evolved from monkeys why do mug- monkeys still exist well i think it's a good question it's a good question it's a logical question it's a good question so so let's let's take a broader look at the world tigers evolved from cats from ancient cats but other cats do exist lions evolved from cats ancient cats but other cats do exist we have cheetahs we have uh, leopards we have bobcats we have lynxes we have pumas we have the the clouded leopard the spotted leopard the amur leopard we have the house cat we have various species of wild cats right so we have so many species of cats and yet the most evolved the strongest ones are the lions and the tigers it's because there have been many species of cats over the past uh, millions of years let's took let's take a look at the dog the 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 dog the domesticated dog is a subspecies of the wolf so these dogs and wolves they are the same species essentially they evolved from ancient canine species but you do have foxes you do have jackals you do also have bears who are closely related to dogs you also have seals and you also have the baleen whales and the porpoises and dolphins who are all part of the broader family so there have been spe- several species of the same family of animals out of which dogs have evolved right now when it comes to dolphins we have dolphins the regular common dolphin bottled nose dolphin but we also have the orcas the killer whales which are the largest species of dolphin we also have other species of dolphin we have the gangetic dolphin we have the iravati dolphin and we have various several species of dolphin so so the dolphin the regular common dolphin is supposed to be the second most intelligent animal that we know of after us so they evolved from ancient dolphins so why do why are there so many other species of dolphins it's because there have always been many species of dolphins and one of these species happen to be happens to be the most evolved today similarly in the past there have been several species of monkeys and apes and the most intelligent one of those today is us we are the most intelligent monkey or ape today it doesn't mean that there should be no other monkeys or apes right so that's how it is it's always been like that there have there have there has been this parallel evolution many parts of evolution of closely related species of 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 animals right families of animals in i think a family has a number of species 
within it and so on and so forth so that's how it is that's why that's how evolution works it happens in parallel you want it's not linear of course it is linear if you trace back our own ancestry but then if you go back several million years it converges with the uh, lineages of other species as well so that's how it goes Aniket says, what if we use 100% of our brain? Some science fiction movies claim that we will be able to use our psychic powers and time travel and control everything, just like being a god. Please answer. See, we have to understand that science fiction is mostly entertainment. It's about entertaining the masses. It's about entertaining the audience. Not all science fiction is hard science. There is a category of science fiction called hard science fiction and then there is the, all the other science fiction and in bookstores science fiction and fantasy is always together so fantasy is not even science but uh, for, for what many people believe that fantasy and science fiction are the same thing so the thing is this that uh, we most likely do use 100% of our brain our brain has a it's it's a large thing it's a large uh, organ it's the most energy-intensive, energy-hungry organ in the body, as far as I know. Yeah. Now, we don't understand how the brain works. We know very little about the brain. We low, we know maybe two or three percent of how the brain actually works. We know what is the internal structure of the brain because we have been dissecting brains for the past uh, few hundred years. We know how it is inside. We know what is the neural structure to some extent, right? Ganglions and dendrites and clusters of neurons. And it's most likely the connections between these neurons that produce memories. Then the question arises of consciousness. What is consciousness and so on? We know that there is an internal brain, the reptilian brain. Then there is an external exterior brain and so on and so forth. And all of these various regions and, and parts of the brain have their own functionality. They have their own use. They have their own function. And they do fulfill the function. See, nature is parsimonious. Evolution ensures that there is no nothing extraneous in an organ which is not needed because anything that's extraneous is a burden to an organism and it will ensure that it gets weeded out in the survival of the, of the fittest. So everything is well designed. It has evolved over millions of years and every part of our brain is actually functional. It has some use. It has some function. It's a, it has a purpose that it does serve. We don't understand what these purposes are. We don't understand what the various parts of the brain do. It doesn't mean that we don't use 100% of the brain. So that is something we have to understand. Science fiction is mostly entertainment. And some people talk about hacking the brain and trying to overclock the brain, inject data into the brain. See, we don't understand how the brain works. And if we start fiddling with the with the core functionality of the brain, it's going to cause problems in whoever brain, whichever person's brain you do these experiments. It can even cause someone to go insane. Who knows what, what's going to happen, right? We don't know why we sleep. What is the use of sleep? I mean, almost every organism on the planet has some form of sleep, especially uh, multicellular organisms and, and organisms that have uh, significant brains. So, so sleep does seem to have some function, but we don't know what it is. Now, one of the ways people talk about of hacking the brain or using more of the brain is by trying to eliminate the need for sleep. Well, we, it has been observed then when, that when an organism is deprived of sleep over a period of 7, 8, 10 days, 
it inevitably leads, leads to death right the, the the animal or whoever it is dies if this is done and therefore you are trying to do something that is highly unnatural so my point is that we don't really understand how the brain works it is a very popular myth and misconception because of science fiction movies and fantasy movies that we only use maybe 1% or 2% of the brain if we take some super drug then we will be we'll start to use all, uh, everything else and it may give us superhuman powers that is a very dangerous myth it should not be taken seriously it's good for science fiction and fantasy movies but that's not the real world so that's the answer to this question Akash says, why do stars which are situated far from the center of the galaxy revolve faster or at least as fast as a star which is closer to the center? Because this doesn't work in the solar system. Mercury revolves around the sun faster than Pluto, but this doesn't happen at the galactic level. Why is that? This is a very good question. So here's what it is. See, uh, The solar system, or if you look at the solar system, if you look at the mass composition of the solar system, more than 99.8% of the mass of the entire solar system is just the sun. So the sun itself, all by itself, makes up more than 99.8% of the mass of the entire solar system. Now, when you have a planet going around let's say the sun in orbit so it's it's orbital motion then what happens is that uh what happens is that the centripetal force and the centripetal acceleration and gravitational acceleration have to balance out to maintain the planet in orbit it also works when you have a satellite in orbit around the earth and it all depends the speed of the orbit the orbital velocity depends on two factors, three factors. But if, 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 the, if the main object is very massive, then you can just take two factors. One is the mass of the object that is being revolved around. And secondly, the distance of your planet from the sun, let's say. Okay. So in the case of the solar system, as we go closer to the sun, orbital speed gets, it, it rises. The orbital velocity, it gets higher, faster and faster. That's why Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars have high orbital velocities, whereas Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, etc. have very low orbital velocities because you have the same mass that they are revolving around. Now, when it comes to the galaxy, you have a supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy. But as you go further and further away from the center of the galaxy, the mass of the galaxy increases, right? Because the galaxy is a big diffuse object. In the case of the solar system, most of the mass, more than 99.8% of the mass, is right at the center. So no matter how far or close you go, you're always orbiting the same amount of mass. But in the case of a galaxy, as we go further and further away from the center, you're orbiting a more and more massive thing. Because if you look at the uh, radius of your orbit, you're, there is more mass as you go outwards that you are orbiting. And that is the reason why, because the mass increases, this uh, uh, the the speed of the of the orbit also increases. And this is what we see in the galactic rotation curves. Let me uh, let me share that image. 
So this is a galactic rotation curve. So you can see that as the distance from the center of the galaxy, see over here you can see the center of the galaxy. If you can see my mouse pointer, over here is the center of the galaxy. As you go further and further away from the center of the galaxy, the speed of rotation of stars increases, whereas it is supposed to decrease or, or, or you know, if, if all the mass was in just one place at the center, it was supposed it is supposed to decrease, and that this uh, this phenomenon is observed because of the of the presence of dark matter. The galaxy has a very sizable dark matter halo. Uh, I think uh, the diameter of the dark matter halo is about two million light years, which is enormous. So as you go further from the center of the galaxy, there is more and more mass that you are revolving around and that is why the speed increases as you go further instead of decreasing if all the mass was just concentrated at the center it's a reasonably technical thing to understand but it's uh, so so, the, so that's how it goes if you understand what orbits are made up of and what is the physics behind orbits then you will uh, figure this out aniket says What's your opinion about Elon Musk? Do you think he is some kind of revolutionizer or something? In my opinion, he is very overrated. He is a great businessman. That's it. He isn't a scientist as he portrays himself. Tesla wasn't founded by him. Neither was PayPal. So what actually is his contribution in the field of science and technology? So listen, I haven't really studied the history of Tesla or PayPal. So I don't know who founded it. Uh, that doesn't really matter. So, so as far as I know, Elon Musk has uh, degrees in physics. I think bachelor or master's degrees. I think at least bachelor's degrees. And if I recall correctly, he was uh, he did get uh, get admission to a PhD program in of the one of the major uh, U.S. universities. I think it was Cornell, if I am not mistaken. He got into the PhD program in physics in one of the major US universities and he chose to drop out of it. So he is clearly good enough. He was clearly good enough to get admission as a PhD candidate in a top US university. Now I am sure he doesn't have a PhD degree. So what is the definition of a scientist? Are you a scientist if you have a degree? Like if you have a master's degree in uh, in physics, does it make you a scientist? Or do you need to have a degree like a PhD degree? in physics to be a scientist is the degree all that matters to be a scientist there are thousands tens of thousands maybe millions of phd holders in this country in india who are not scientists they haven't produced a single original scientific uh, discovery or anything at all so having a, a degree of some kind doesn't make you a scientist i know elon musk doesn't have a phd does it does it uh, mean that he is not a scientist? And many of these PhD degree holders who are officially scientists in the eyes of the world, what do they do? What do they contribute to society? They, they uh, write research papers which are published in obscure journals that nobody reads. The only people who read these papers are other scientists. That's a very small community. And more than 99% of these papers will have no real impact on the world. They will not make any great change in the world. It's like, you know, there's this uh, 
saying in, in science, in academia, publish or perish. So if you want to keep progressing or in rising, riding and climbing the academic ladder, you have to keep publishing research papers every year, a number of papers every year, four or five at least per year, at least three, I would say. And that ensures that you keep uh, climbing the academic ladder, you get promotions and you eventually get tenure. But what difference does it make to the world? What good does it do to the world? These people are officially scientists in the eyes of the world. They have a position, they have a degree. But if you look at the history of the past 40 years, there's not been one single new discovery in physics that throws new light upon the universe as we understand, as we see it. Physics has not progressed in the past 40 years. So what is the point of having these degrees and having these academicians and all that? What, what good are they doing to the world? That's my question. I'm not saying Elon Musk is good or something. I am saying what is the meaning, what is the definition of a scientist? What's the definition of an intellectual? An intellectual is somebody who produces new ideas. It's not somebody who reads hundreds of books. I have all these books behind me. Does it mean I'm an intellectual? I am not an intellectual if I read 500 books or a thousand books. There are people who say, I read 50 books a year, so I'm an intellectual. <laughs> an intellectual is a person who produces genuine new ideas that are actually useful to society, that actually take society forwards. There are many people who produce these garbage ideas, who produce research papers, who publish books that make no difference in the world. It's just the regurgitation and rehashing of old ideas. So publishing a book doesn't make you a scientist or an intellectual. Publishing research papers that are worthless doesn't make you a scientist or an intellectual. Reading 5,000 books doesn't make you an intellectual or a scientist. A scientist is somebody who produces genuine new ideas and brings the word world forward. Now, what does Elon Musk do? He is definitely a businessman. He wanted to be a physicist. He went for a PhD into, in physics and then he abandoned it because most likely he did not like the academic environment. And he sought to succeed in this adopted country of his, adoptive country of his, the United States. And as a businessman to succeed in the US, you have to, well, play by certain rules. And he found a way of succeeding at that. He is definitely a great businessman. He is not a scientist, I agree, because he is not doing any research. He is uh, trying to find ways of sending humans to Mars. He is, of course, putting all, this, all these satellite constellations in space, Iridium, I think. Yeah. So yeah, he is doing all that. He, he does not fit my definition of a scientist, but he's clearly a visionary. Of course, all, all, all his uh, work is going to benefit him. It's going to enrich him. So if you think that is bad, well, then that's not a very good thing. I would say that uh, any progress in business, any progress in science should benefit the whole of humanity. But the US, the American capitalistic system is not like that. Everything is monetized. Even vaccines are monetized. Any scientific invention is used to make money for a very small number of people. And that's just the way the system is. So he wanted to succeed in that country because there was nothing for him in South Africa. This is, there was no entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial uh, environment there. So he chose to come to the US. He chose to 
try and succeed there. He has succeeded. So that is his contribution to the world. He will most he will possibly succeed in sending humans to Mars, I suppose, in the next 10-20 years. Whom will it benefit? It will benefit a small number of people. It's not going to be used for the benefit of humanity. It's going to be used, well, to enrich him, his company, his shareholders, stakeholders, and so on. That's just how the game is played. So that's about him. I don't see him as a bad person. I don't see him as somebody who is evil. I think he's better in some ways than many other business people. He is not a scientist. He has chosen not to be a scientist. He was clearly good enough to be one, at least by the academic standards. He would he would have gotten himself a PhD and he would have maybe published a bunch of research papers. But that's not what makes a scientist. So all in all, that's about Elon Musk. I don't see him as an evil person. I see the system. Well, I am saying this this capitalistic system is evil. It does not mean I'm a Marxist or a socialist. Uh, Marxism and socialism is equally, if not more evil than capitalism. But that's just the way the world is. You know, I have spoken about geopolitics in the past. It's all about conquering the world. And it's all about pursuing your personal interests selfishly. Well, so is the capitalistic system. That's also the way it is, you know. So he has found a way to succeed in that. And it's good for him. Okay, Jagyan Jatin says, Do you think humans will survive a mass extinction or will we go on like this forever? So will humanity, is humanity in a position to survive a mass extinction or will humanity last forever? Well, you know what? Nothing lasts forever. We have had many species of human beings in the past that have disappeared. We are a relatively new species of human being. We have been around for a quarter million years in the anatomically modern form, Homo sapiens. Now, are we in a position that we can survive a mass extinction? So what's a mass extinction? It's a catastrophic event of some kind in which a majority of the living beings and species on the planet go extinct. So that could be something like an asteroid strike or a comet strike, or like what happened about 65 million years ago in the uh, Chicxulub impact event, which uh, what was what killed off the majority of the dinosaurs. Some dinosaurs did survive. And our ancestors, who were very small at the time, they also did survive that. So they did survive the mass extinction that dis- that killed off the majority of the known avian dinosaurs. Right? So that is one mass extinction our ancestors survived. Now, are we in a position to survive another such mass extinction? What if a comet were to impact the planet? I don't see humanity surviving that. We can try and uh, nudge the comet out of its orbit that will that will coincide with the Earth's orbit. That we can do if we can see it coming with sufficient time in hand. We can we may be able to deflect an asteroid and nudge it out of the way if it is coming towards the Earth. But if it is too late and if it, it if it does impact the Earth, then there's no way humanity can survive. We will go the way of the dinosaurs. Now there are other ways of having a mass extinction. For example, right now we are destroying the oceans. We are polluting the oceans, we are choking the oceans with plastic, and we are dumping all kinds of chemicals and other things into the ocean. In the past, there have been uh, mass extinction events that saw uh, 
anoxic conditions in the oceans so the oceans have this uh, these organisms called phytoplankton these are unicellular or mi- multicellular microorganisms that have chlorophyll that undergo photosynthesis and at least half of the entire planet's oxygen is produced by these phytoplankton organisms that live in the world's oceans now if we were to engineer because of our stupidity an anoxic event in the oceans which means that the oceans go they get starved of oxygen then all of this phyto phytoplankton will die out and many other species will die out and if the oceans die out we will lose uh, one of the we will lose we will lose the major source of oxygen on the planet and that could trigger off a catastrophic chain of events that could wipe out the majority of the species at least the terrestrial species on the planet including humanity because it it would kill out many of the smaller animals and and plants and that would lead to the starvation eventually of of humanity so there are many mechanisms by which a mass extinction event can take place and i am afraid that we are not currently in a position that we can survive such a thing we don't have another planet that we can go to because none of the planets in our solar system have anything like the conditions we would need to survive there and we don't have the means to send a significant percentage of humanity to any of the planets whether it's the moon whether it's mars whether it's venus right so this is the only home we have the earth as of today and if something were to go wrong here i don't see humanity surviving that so unfortunately we are currently not in a position to survive a mass extinction event if that were to happen we are in a position to ensure a mass extinction event does not happen so we need to get our act together we need to ensure that we stop polluting and destroying the oceans we need to ensure we stop de deforesting the terrestrial regions of our planet we need to stop polluting the atmosphere if we can do that if we can stop all this uh, animal agriculture if we can stop people eating beef then a great deal uh, we can change a great deal in the world and maybe ensure that our future generations will have a better world to live on and we will ensure that a mass extinction won't happen but it needs to start happening now or very soon but otherwise we may not be able to survive a mass extinction event srishti says is there any cosmology branch in india how can a person in india become a cosmologist okay so cosmology is a branch of physics that deals with the the chronology and the history of the universe and the uh, the physics of the universe at very large scales the large scale structure of the universe and uh, it it combines astronomy and the and the laws of physics and also sometimes chemistry etc to understand how the universe evolved over time and what is going to be the ultimate fate of the universe in the very distant future so that's what cosmology is about so how do you become a cosmologist in india or anywhere else first of all so to become a cosmologist you need to have a solid understanding of theoretical physics physics you need an understanding of uh, general relativity of quantum mechanics of electromagnetism of solid state physics and various other allied and associated branches of physics you need to have a very good understanding of all these various branches 
of physics so and i'm not sure if any universities in india offer courses in in cosmology but there are certain some so so what we, you would need is you would need at least a masters degree in physics in with your uh, specialization in either quantum physics or nuclear physics or uh, general relativity or or quantum physics or electromagnetism or one of these closely allied fields in theoretical physics or maybe solid state physics etc you would need a masters degree in that maybe a phd in that and then maybe you would get uh employment in one of the institutes one of the few institutes in, in this country in india which uh, do have some research in cosmology so i think uh, the physical research laboratory in ahmedabad has some some research in cosmology may be happening there tifr mumbai perhaps then there is a natural national center for radio astrophysics i think it's a branch of tifr pune which does do some astronomical astrophysical cosmological research to some extent you have the raman research institute in bangalore the indian institute of science in bangalore you have ayuka inter university consortium or center for astronomy and astrophysics again in pune and you have the indian institute of space science i think it is in uh, trivandrum so these are some of the indian uh, institutions institutes research institutes that do some research in cosmology so that is the path you would have to take you would need a masters degree and possibly a phd in one of these specializations and then you can apply for a job in one of these institutes or institutions and that's how you would become a cosmologist if you do want to make a real difference and do genuine research in cosmology you will have to go abroad now you know you know very well what i feel about this i i would very much want to see world class research being done in india as of today it is not the case there is no real cutting edge world class science research being done in india anywhere so if you really want to become a genuine world class cosmologist and do some some real difference in research in cosmology you would need to go to another country maybe in europe maybe in north america etc and maybe in the future when india does get its act together and start doing genuine research then maybe you can come back and contribute to the country but that is in short how you would become a cosmologist that is the path you would follow towards becoming a cosmologist in india uh, shreyas says what is a matryoshka brain so if you know what a matryoshka doll is it is this nested doll that you have that is uh, so uh typical of russia you have a doll if you open the doll there's another doll inside you open that doll there's another third doll inside and you have dolls all the way in so it's a nested series of dolls that's called the matryoshka doll so a matryoshka brain is a hypothetical science fiction structure that uh is built on a on a on a stellar scale so it's essentially a dyson sphere a dyson sphere is a mega structure that envelops an entire star and it's able to uh, to capture the entire energy output of a star so that's a dyson sphere so a matryoshka brain is a computer in the form of a dyson sphere so you have a star that is completely enveloped by this mega structure by this by this dyson sphere 
and the energy output of the star is utilized to do computational activity so it is a it is a computer that is larger than a star now as you know any computer a laptop or a computer of any kind it does calculations it need it does computations of all kinds it does need a power source and it gives off heat waste heat as a result of all the computational activities it does so in the case of a matryoshka brain the dyson sphere that envelops the star would use the star's heat and light output as the energy source it would do computations and it would give off waste heat it would output that out now a matryoshka brain is one dyson sphere and there's another dyson sphere around it which takes all this waste heat and uses that as the energy source for more computation it gives off more waste heat and there's a third dyson sphere around it that takes in this uh emitted heat as the energy source and there's a whole concentric series of dyson spheres that are actually enormous computers that all use this output this heat that is output for computational activity so it is a series of nested dyson spheres that act as computers and that is the the concept of a matryoshka brain so this is a hypothetical science fiction scenario uh, we don't know of any civilization anywhere that is capable of doing this we have not thus far encountered any uh, non human alien civilizations but it is clear that if an, if a civilization were to be sufficiently advanced it would be able to engineer this sort of a structure it is certainly possible it is not impossible the laws of physics don't uh, preclude this sort of a machine from being constructed but it is well beyond the capability of the human species but it is certainly possible theoretically hypothetically dominic says is it possible to make a spacecraft that uses the plentiful hydrogen available in outer space so that's a concept that has been uh, again discussed in uh, science fiction it's called a bussard ramjet so in a bussard ramjet ramjet you would have a spacecraft with a fusion engine it fuses hydrogen and this fusion reaction impels it forward and in front of the spacecraft there is this enormous ram scoop which is a scoop that's made up of enormous magnetic fields that go out into space for thousands of kilometers maybe millions of kilometers now we know that the interstellar medium is full of this very diffuse hydrogen gas it's extremely diffuse and this interstellar medium is a better vacuum a more perfect vacuum than anything we can have on the planet earth and yet it does have hydrogen atoms it is a very low density of hydrogen atoms and perhaps even molecules in some places so a bussard ramjet ramjet would exploit this property of the interstellar space so the spacecraft would be propelled by a fusion reaction and it would have this enormous ram scoop in front of it magnetic fields that extend for thousands or millions of kilometers and these magnetic fields suck in 
all this diffuse hydrogen gas and they all they bring it all into the into the input of the of the fusion engine of the ramjet and that's what serves as the fuel for this enormous uh, enormous ramjet engine so yes it is definitely uh, possible if you have the technological means to create such a such a machine to use the interstellar hydrogen for fuel in 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 a spacecraft it is definitely possible but of course once again we still are we don't have anything close to that sort of technological ability as of today maybe a thousand years in the future if we last that long then maybe we may be able to build such a such a spacecraft akash says does the dark matter halo if it exists envelop the galaxies and also permeate them also are we inside this dark matter halo so uh we know that dark matter halos do exist they, we have observed them uh we just discussed the galactic rotation curves which is one of the signature uh one, one, one of the phenomena that tell us that these dark matter halos do exist so a galactic dark matter halo is typically spherical in shape we know that galaxies are pancake shaped most of them especially spiral galaxies like the milky way and the andromeda galaxy but the dark matter halo which we can't see but whose gravitational effects we do observe these halos are spherical in shape and for the milky way the dark dark matter halo has a has a diameter of, of about 2 million 2 million light years it's a spherical halo and the dark matter is not only found in the exterior part of the galaxy it is everywhere it is all around us it is everywhere we are currently inside the dark matter halo it is in this room where i am right now wherever you are sitting and watching this it is in your room as well it is passing right through you but you don't feel it so that is what dark matter is it is some it is an un- unknown particle or substance which interacts only gravitationally and the gravitational interaction is so incredibly weak that we can't perceive it especially when it comes to very small particles yeah so that is what it is we are in it we are bathed in dark matter particles but we have no idea what they are so it is right here right here at this very moment i am sitting in an entire ocean of dark matter particles the sun is inside an ocean of dark matter particles our milk our milky way our our solar system it's it's passing through a wind of dark matter and that's what it is dungar singh johan says what is the shape of a black hole can we see the back side of a black hole so when it comes to black holes when we talk about the shape of a black hole we are talking about the shape of the event horizon of a black hole which is the boundary of no return so once a light particle a photon crosses the event horizon it never comes back it is not able capable of coming back that is just the way it is so the shape of a black hole is the shape of the event horizon of the black hole so for a non rotating black hole which is also called a schwarzschild black hole the shape is perfectly spherical it's a perfect sphere in the case of a schwarzschild non rotating 
black hole. But for rotating black holes, the shape of the event horizon, horizon is oblate. It's like a squashed sphere. So on the poles of the sphere, the poles are the, uh, the essentially the axis around which the black hole is rotating. So around the poles, the black hole is slightly squashed. And around the equatorial region of the black hole, it is slightly uh, elongated. So it's like a squashed sphere in the case of a rotating black hole. Now, can we see the the backside of a black hole? Well, a black a black hole has no uh, there's nothing to see in it. It's completely dark. It's completely you could say transparent. No light ever comes out of it, so you cannot really see the backside of a black hole or or any side of it. But what you can see is light that is behind the black hole. So recently, this uh, phenomenon was observed that light actually went all the way around the, around the black hole, and we were able to see it again. So an object which is behind the black hole, we may be we may be able to see it because of uh, uh, this uh, phenomenon in which light it's uh, the space time itself is warped and bent and light curves because of this phenomenon, right? It's called lensing, gravitational lensing. So let's say I am sitting here, I have a black hole in front of me, and there is a star exactly behind, precisely behind. Uh, me behind the black hole so which means that, that the black hole is exactly between me and the star then i will be able to observe the light of the star which comes behind the black hole it just curves around the black hole so that is what we do indeed see but we cannot see anything about the black hole itself because it is completely and perfectly well almost perfectly dark there is the phenomenon of hawking radiation which is a completely different thing so we don't get to see any features of the black hole or anything, but we do see a flux of radiation that comes out of it, which is a separate phenomenon. Pinkline Cabs says, will automation destroy or save humanity? Well, automation is a, a bunch of technologies, robotics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, so you have software automation, you have algorithmic automation, you have actual physical automation done by assembly line robots, other kinds of robots, and so on and so forth, right? So automation is a tool. And tools can be used in a variety of ways. You can use a tool for something good, you can use a tool for something bad. It all depends on who is the person or the organization or the entity that holds the tool in their hand. Right? So today, if you look at the world, who runs the world? It is the Western countries that essentially run the world. It is these big capitalistic corporations who run the world. And the entire objective of the global system today is to make money. It's all about that. It's the, it's the system that has been placed since in place since the days of the colonization of the world by the European countries. It's a system that has been placed that has been in place since the days of the East India Company. It's all about amassing money, and the better tools you have, the better you are at amassing money. So today, artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotics—it is all being developed by various corporations and various powerful governments who have all the money, and they are using it to amass more resources and more power and more influence for themselves. So as of today, 
automation is going to make a small number of countries and a small number of individuals and a small number of corporations incredibly insanely rich and it's going to happen at the expense of the rest of the world and that's why there is this arms race of a sort going on technological race in which technology is the new arms right so automation is one part of that so it's all about how you use it and today the people who are using who who are developing these uh, these automation tools they are doing it for the purpose of enriching and empowering themselves not for the benefit of humanity today we already have enough money and enough resources to end world hunger once and for all we have enough money enough resources to ensure that everybody has good standards of living all across the world and yet you have so much disparity so much inequality it's because all of the wealth has been stolen and amassed by the western world and now they are using various other tools such as automation and other technologies to enrich themselves even more this is a new kind of colonization so as we stand today automation is going to well it's not going to save humanity it's going to make the rich richer and the poor poorer it's going to make the powerful even more powerful and it's going to disempower everybody else so that is the direction in which we are going and that's why i keep saying india needs to rise and and it's it needs to rise on its own terms today india is a second rate knockoff of the west that's what india aspires to be that's what india's leaders aspire india to to look like in the future an english speaking second rate knockoff a cut price copy of the western model of the western world india does not india should not go in that direction india needs to rise again as a civilization on, on the basis of its own cultural and civilizational values only then will we have an alternative model to the model that we have today which is the model that even the chinese are copying so that's what needs to happen avinash says what is the meaning of baryonic matter that's a good question so what is a baryon so uh, see baryons are subatomic particles that are made up of odd number of quarks so you have six quarks you have the up quark the down quark the charm quark the strange quark the top quark and the bottom quark and these quarks have fractional charges the up quark the charm quark and the top quark have plus 2/3 elementary charge and the down quark the strange quark and the bottom quark have minus 1/3 elementary charge so these are the most fundamental particles that we know of these six quarks and baryons are particles that are made up of an odd number of quarks at least three quarks so for example you have the proton which has u u d one up quark another up quark and a down quark in a in a bound state so the proton is a bound state of two up quarks and one down quark it has a positive one charge the neutron is a bound state of one up quark and two down quarks so these are triplets of quarks and these are what are known as baryons right you also have uh, exotic baryons penta quarks which have been observed so these are bound states of five quarks so as long as you have a bound state of three or more quarks and it is an an odd number of quarks 
that is what is known as a baryon. You also have mesons. Mesons are bosons. They have they are bound states of even number of quarks. So that's how it goes. So baryonic matter is essentially matter that's made up of protons and neutrons. So most of the matter that we see around us, that we experience in the world, is baryonic matter. You also have leptons that are electrons and neutrinos and various other kinds of particles in this submatter in the subatomic particle zoo. But that's what baryonic matter is. Is it is matter that uh, that uh, that follows uh, Fermi Dirac statistics. These are fermions as opposed to bosons, which obey Bose-Einstein statistics. So that, in a nutshell, in very brief, is what baryonic matter is. Dungar Singh Chauhan says, is there anything non-physical in existence? If yes, then what would be its definition? Can we perceive it through our logic and senses? See, this is a question about that that uh, transcends the physical world and goes into the philosophical world. So what can we perceive through our senses? We can perceive physical things through our senses. Our senses are all predicated on mostly electromagnetism, which is how we perceive light and color and all that. We perceive sound through the vibrations of the air, acoustic vibrations of air. And we perceive things like shape and and hardness and all that because of, well, because of quantum mechanics, because of the laws of quantum mechanics. So these are the reasons why we perceive what we perceive. And this this is all physical. Now, we do know that we are conscious. We do perceive something called consciousness, but we don't know how to define it. And we don't know if it is an emergent phenomenon or it is something else entirely. We don't have the foggiest idea of what that is. So is consciousness physical or non-physical? Is it something we imagine or does it, is it, does it really exist? These questions are still well unanswered. So that is the only non-physical thing that we, if it is non-physical, that we may be able to perceive. Maybe it itself is something that emerges out of out of uh, ordered complexity, perhaps. We don't know. This is all speculation. Now, wh what is the definition of something that is non-physical? Something that is non-physical is something that is not observable. It is either an object that is non-observable or a phenomenon that is non-observable. For example, uh, the soul. The soul is something that has never been observed. You can't measure it. You can't quantify it. You don't know its shape or its size, its color, its weight or anything like that. It is something that people believe in, but it has never been observed scientifically, unambiguously or even ambiguously. It's never been observed. So that is something that is non-physical. Does it exist? Well, as a scientist, I have never seen any evidence of it existing. Do I believe in it? Well, that's entirely personal to me. Many scientists may believe in the existence of a soul or of a god or gods or whatever. But in the physical world, we cannot observe, measure, quantify these non-physical things. So do these things exist? Do non-physical entities, objects, phenomena exist? We cannot observe them. And therefore, we cannot say, we cannot say for sure whether they exist or not. As a pure, from a purely scientific pers perspective, 
what is non observable what is non measurable what is non quantifiable does not exist and science is limited to the observable universe it doesn't mean that certain things may not exist because our understanding of science is very very rudimentary our instruments our senses are very rudimentary very primitive and therefore if our instruments if our scientific instruments if our senses were to progress further then we may be be able to to observe certain things that we currently consider to be non physical but as of today none of the non physical things is observable such as the soul or god or gods or spirits or whatever you call it we cannot observe it and therefore we cannot say that it exists we cannot claim without evidence that it exists we cannot perceive it through our senses or through logic but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist okay so that's that's my position on that okay mayuri says while the dinosaurs were here for 270 million years they did not care about the sun or the stars we on the other hand in our short 7 million years have reached the moons the moon and mars so which of the following statements is right a we are nothing but a tiny speck of dust in the vast universe and b the universe has meaning because there is something us to observe it well that's again a philosophical question um the dinosaurs were here for yeah some few hundred million years well we don't know whether they didn't, they, they cared or not about the sun or the stars we don't know maybe there were certain reasonably intelligent dinosaurs who liked to look at the stars and look at the sun and they were aware or conscious of the existence of the sun and the stars or the moon we don't know we cannot assume that there were no reasonably intelligent dinosaurs i'm sure there were certain dinosaurs that were as intelligent as our dogs or the dolphins or elephants it's entirely possible so maybe some of them did care did observe and did uh, perceive these things now we as humans have existed for about maybe 2 million years 2 3 million years homo sapiens as our species has existed for about 250000 years now we have indeed reached the moon we have sent spacecraft to mars and to other places so which of these following statements is we are indeed a very small speck of dust in the vast universe we know that the observable universe has a radius or diameter is it 90 billion light years i think it's the diameter so we are clearly insignificant in comparison with the size of the observable universe the actual universe may even dwarf what we see of the universe so if you look at the size of the solar system if you look at the size of the earth it's clearly an insignificant tiny speck of dust that there, there is no question about it it is indeed true there may be many more uh, advanced species of 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 beings out there in the universe that we have not yet observed so we are clearly insignificant we are clearly very small insignificant insignificant tiny all that uh question b is does the universe have meaning because there is something us to observe it well that again is is about the observer effect 
something doesn't exist unless it is observed einstein once said that does it mean that the moon doesn't exist if i don't look at it so again this is a philosophical question we don't really know the answer uh i remember when i was a little kid i used to wonder if i'm not looking at something does it really exist and then i would quickly turn around and look and yeah it's there but does it exist when i'm not looking that was the question that i had when i was a kid and that turn it turns out it's one of fundamental questions i mean does the universe exist if we are not observing it there are certain parts of the universe that may never have been observed by humans so does it mean that for all intents and purposes those parts of the universe don't exist these are some very fundamental questions that arise out of our study of the ultra microscopic world quantum mechanics so maybe maybe there's a possibility that that uh, reality is meaningful only when something is observing it and what is that something is it an intelligent observer is it a consciousness so these questions we don't really have an answer to them as of today these are the deep mysteries that we are currently uh, wrestling with in our our uh, study of this extremely mysterious field of physics quantum physics quantum field theory quantum mechanics especially the interpretation of quantum mechanics because it does throw up extremely strange and rather uncomfortable paradoxes at us so i would say that we are to to answer the two questions in short we are indeed nothing but a tiny speck of dust in the whole universe and the second question we don't really know maybe the universe does exist without any observer observing it or maybe it does take an observer to observe the universe to bring it into existence which then makes us ask this big question that a wave function doesn't collapse into reality unless it is observed by an external observer now our universe itself has one wave function and we know the universe exists so which external observer is observing the universe <laughs> that's the question right so yeah it 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 throws up all kinds of mysteries and paradoxes and things that kind of transcend science and physics and we currently don't have answers to this akash says there were so many different types of human species why did only homo sapiens survive that's a good question so see homo sapiens as a species is is a very recent species it's about 250000 years old a quarter of a million years old the most successful species of human that we know of is homo erectus so the oldest uh, fossilized specimens of homo erectus are found in africa that's about 2 million years old we know that uh, there is evidence that homo erectus made its way into asia about 1.7 million years before today and the last uh, known existence of homo erectus is about 100000 years before today in indonesia so it seems to have died out as a species only 1 lakh years before today so so homo erectus is the most successful 
human species of all time it lasted almost 2 million years almost and compared to that we are very recent just a quarter of a million years old right so there have been many types of human species now did only homo sapiens survive is the question you know that there have been other subspecies of humans like uh, the neanderthals that were alive until about 20 30000 years ago we know that the denisovans also existed a different subspecies of humans we had the homo florensis from indonesia we had uh homo erectus and so on we also know that we carry about 4% neanderthal dna which means that we have neanderthal ancestors it's like having one great grandparent or something like that one great one great great grandparent who was a neanderthal or maybe one great grandparent the math is very simple so we do have neanderthal dna we have had neanderthal ancestors which means that they haven't really died out in, entirely their their descendants are still alive there is us so it's clear that homo sapiens is a sapiens is not a pure species it is a mixed species we have neanderthal dna some of us also have denisovan dna so again it means that, that the denisovans did not die out entirely their descendants are still alive then there is us and there is another ghost dna ghost population whose dna exists within us and that population that species or subspecies has not been identified and that could very well be the great homo erectus so what i mean to say is that there is no such thing as a pure species there is no such thing as a pure um yeah no no pure species right so it is incorrect to say that the neanderthals died out entirely it is incorrect to say that denisovans died out entirely or maybe even though the the homo erectus also still survives in some way in some form through us so we are the sum total of a great number of different species that interbred together there may be many other unknown populations whose dna we are still carrying right so we are the we are the only ones that have survived till now maybe it's because we are the most recent one and maybe we are the ones who adapted the best in the past 100000 years or so so we don't exactly know why we are the only ones who survived did we ensure that the neanderthals were wiped out did was there a conflict between the homo sapiens and the neanderthals that is something that has been speculated but we don't have complete evidence of that we do have evidence of inbreeding interbreeding between us and them and same for the denisovans and so so on so it is most likely that homo sapiens was the most adaptable in the past quarter of a million years and that's why we have survived and maybe we were the most intelligent intelligent ones and we interbred with these other species we absorbed their best traits their best dna traits and that's what we carry with us today so that is in brief about this question avinash says is is dark energy negative energy well dark energy is an unknown form of energy it is not negative 
it is definitely positive energy it does produce some kind of repulsive force effect it produces the it it causes it seems to cause the accelerating expansion of the universe so that's all we know about it it's one of the most mysterious things that we know of in the universe it makes up more than 80% more than 73% of the of the mass energy composition of the universe and we don't have the least idea of what it is so it's a it's an extremely mysterious thing but what we know is that it is not negative energy it is not that it is positive energy mass energy whatever you call it it's not negative energy but that's all we can say about it as of today it's one of the greatest mysteries in existence Ishwar Moody says, which is a better fuel for, of the future according to you? Solar, electric, nuclear or hydrogen? So solar fuel, nuclear fuel, hydrogen, they all have, a, a, well, they all have good prospects. It all depends on the context. So nuclear fuel is, is a, it's very energetic. It, it, it it gives you a great deal of energy output for, a, for from a very little amount of fuel so that's a good thing and if you can use it the right way it it, it can uh, maybe have almost no uh, it it may not cause any pollution if you know how to dispose of whatever is left behind and in the future we may be able to use uh, materials such as helium 3 which is found in abundance in the lunar regolith in the soil of the moon so that could power future fusion reactors and fusion reactors are they will be extremely fuel efficient and there will be almost no uh, byproducts you know waste products from that so that is a very good future fuel so it has good prospects for the future for sure solar energy if we can learn how to harness it more efficiently is also a very good prospect for the future Hydrogen is found in abundance in the interstellar medium. So in the future, if someday we are able to travel across interstellar distances, then that could be a very good source of fuel, especially in the, in the context of what we discussed earlier, the, the Bassard Ramjet kind of engine. So the, yeah, the, so all three of them have different applications depending on, on what context we are in. If we are to be an earthbound species, then nuclear fuel, nuclear energy makes a lot of sense, especially if we are able to uh, build fusion reactors. If we can use uh, helium-3, for instance, that's a great source of energy. Solar energy also is also great if we are within the solar system, especially close to the sun. And hydrogen makes sense if you are traveling interstellar distances. So all three have uh, good future prospects depending on the context in which they are being used. Shivansh, uh, Shivansh says, can you please speak about asteroid mining and resource extraction? What are the potential problems in this process? And what are all the feasible methods by which we can do it? And does it have the potential to create another benchmark in the history of wealthy people? So in the future, I've spoken about how Asteroid mining can potentially, possibly create 
trillionaires in the future because there is so much uh, so much mineral resources etc that one can extract from asteroids now here is a reality check see the asteroids the vast majority of asteroids are small the shape of a small rock or maybe tens of meters in diameter that's quite small and the amount of minerals you can extract from an asteroid that is maybe a hundred meters in diameter is just a few grams maybe a few grams of cobalt maybe a few grams of gold or aluminum so an asteroid which is about a hundred meters in diameter is not that good of of a of an investment to go all the way there and to extract and to try and extract minerals or resources from it now the other thing is that the average distance between any two asteroids is about a million kilometers which is more than double the distance between the earth and the moon so if you go to one asteroid and you check it out and you discover that it doesn't have too many minerals in it it's not mineral rich then to go to the next asteroid would be at least a million kilometers away so you would need to spend that much fuel to go all the way there and then try the other asteroid and see whether it has any resources or not so it is not an efficient process the asteroids are so f- they are so far away from each other and most of them are so small that they are not a valuable investment for you to spend so much money and resources going all the way to the asteroid belt and going to one asteroid and we don't know which asteroid contains what minerals there is no price tag on, a, on an asteroid that this asteroid contains these many metric tons of 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 uh, material and these many tons of gold or cobalt or aluminum inside it there's no way of knowing unless you actually go there and do some prospecting and even if you find a large asteroid with a significant amount of some mineral that you need how are you going to extract it you cannot do extraction in space right extraction is done in in refineries on earth you have iron refineries or, or other refineries of other things of other materials or minerals so there is an entire process that you have to create an entire factory that you have to set up you have to first grind the material then put it through various chemical processing maybe some heat treatment and so on it's a it's a multi stage process you just can't do it in space so it is actually extremely impractical and unfeasible to do any kind of asteroid mining with with anything close to the kind of technology we have today so it may not be possible for the next 100 years or maybe even the next 1000 years unless we can find ways of knowing from far away which asteroid contains how much uh mineral or whatever substance we are seeking and then we may be able to target those but as of today it is extremely unfeasible to even think of asteroid mining so it is not something that's going to be possible in the next century it's not going to create trillionaires anytime soon it is still very much in the realm of science fiction ashna says what's your take on light pollution yeah light pollution is something that most people are not aware of so just 20 30 years ago the skies were very dark across the world but today if you see 
most cities, most urban centers, most towns, there is so much light that you can't see anything in the sky in the, in the night. You, there are, you can see barely a handful of stars in the night. In the past, like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you could see the entire Milky Way in the night, even in small towns, even in cities at night, because there was so so little light pollution. So light pollution essentially is that we are that we have so much light now on the surface of the planet that it goes up into the sky, and because of the kind of gases we have in the atmosphere, either smoke, smoke or pollution, or even the the, the clouds. So all of this light is reflected in the atmosphere. The entire atmosphere glows. And because of that, it is impossible to do any astronomy or to do any any stargazing or anything like that. So that is light pollution. There is so much light glow in the sky at night that you can't see any stars anymore. You can barely see a handful of stars. And that is something that is impacting a lot of things, not just stargazers and astronomers. It is impacting the circadian rhythms of people. It is impacting the circadian cycles of other species of birds, of animals, because it all the, the circadian cycle of uh, of animals and 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 uh, birds and insects depends on the fact that the night sky is supposed to be dark and only for a few hours of the day you have light from the sun. So it is messing up the circadian cycles of non-human species. It is even messing up the life cycles of plants and trees. So it is going to have long-term effects and it is something that hopefully should be combated. So what needs to be done is that our light um, sources need to become more efficient. We are wasting too much of our light just throwing it up into the into the atmosphere. What we need to do is to we need to uh, ensure that all of it falls only on the ground and doesn't uh, get wasted. So it not only causes light pollution, it is also a wastage of energy. So that is the situation we are in. There is a great deal of light pollution. We can actually see the entire uh, state of the planet from, from space. At night, we can see the entire planet lit up. You know, the you can see the various towns and cities. You can see the whole country of India from space. It is so bright at night. So that is all light pollution. And that is an enormous wastage of energy. We need to become more energy efficient. And if we do that, we will also be able to reverse this effect of light pollution. Tanish, Tanishk says, do you think that hackers will be the future soldiers of a country? They are already soldiers, hackers. Because uh, hacking is one of the major uh, domains. The cyber domain is one of the major domains of warfare nowadays. So using uh, computer hacking, using cyber techniques, you can even cripple countries overnight. You can cause uh, traffic jams, you can cause uh, disruptions in traffic, you can uh, halt stock exchanges, you can cause electrical grids to collapse, you can cause blackouts, power, power outages, and whatnot. You can stop the entire communications of a country, all your phones will go dead, your internet will disappear, it can cause chaos overnight. And today, many countries already do have the capability of doing this. And certain trial runs may actually be happening from time to time in various parts of the world. So yes, hackers will indeed be uh, 
they are indeed considered to be soldiers for example the chinese army the so called people's liberation army has a cyber division so those are all military officers those uh, hackers you know so yeah it's already part of the military domain and so are other domains as well but yes hackers are indeed soldiers they can be considered to be soldiers avinash asks how will the universe end so there are a number of theories of what will happen the the long term fate of the universe uh one possibility is that the uni- the universe started in a big bang and it will die in a big rip which means the universe will keep on expanding forever and eventually all sources of light energy heat will dissipate away and the universe will be- will become a cold lifeless place and it will just go on expanding forever and eventually everything will just rip apart dark energy will increase so much that even atoms and molecules will be broken up and that is how the universe will end that is one theory the other theory is that the universe will expand for some time and then it will it will contract again and you will have a big crunch so it will be a big bang in reverse everything will contract into itself one theory is that there will be a big bounce the universe will expand for some time then it will contract again and uh, according to loop quantum gravity it will not contract into a simul- singularity but it will contract into uh, a volume of space that is 10 raised to minus 99 cubic meters in volume and it will bounce bounce back from that again and you will have another big bang kind of event from there so it's kind of a cyclical uh, model of the universe then according to roger penrose's conformal cyclic universe uh, theory uh, the long large the eventual end of the universe will it will exp- it will keep on expanding and that will in turn be the same as a new big bang kind of event so there are a number of theories that we have but we we the kind of data that we have is woefully insufficient we have been around for a very small time on the universe and we know very little about it we understand less than 5% of the universe so all we have is theories and hypotheses so we have these different models of what could be the eventual long term fate of the universe but these are only theories we don't know for sure so that's where we are as of today manab says do aliens live among us and if yes are they a threat to humanity well we should at least have one question about aliens right it's not fun until we have one question about aliens at least so do aliens live amongst us we don't have any evidence that aliens live amongst us we have no evidence of any other alien civilization anywhere else in the known universe and we have no evidence that any of them live amongst us it's always nice to imagine it makes the world a very interesting place if there are hidden aliens living amongst us so it's nice to imagine that but and and many people have claimed that that aliens actually exist they are here amongst us there are claims about this there are claims of ufo's coming and visiting us there are claims that crop circles are created by aliens there are these uh, ancient aliens theorists whatever that is and there are other other scientists and people with reasonably good reputations who claim that aliens do exist but where's the evidence evidence has to be presented evidence has to be unambiguous 
it has to be incontrovertible evidence when you have a lawsuit for example evidence has to be presented in court evidence that stands up to scrutiny somebody makes a claim that does not constitute evidence so as of today we don't have evidence that proves beyond any doubt that aliens exist that ufo's exist and that aliens live amongst us and therefore from from the lack of evidence one would have to say that it does not appear that there is no credible or sufficient evidence that aliens exist among us or so so if they don't exist among us we have no idea whether they are they are a threat to humanity or not so that's the answer we we don't have any credible unambiguous evidence that aliens exist or live amongst us okay that brings me to an end of these questions let me take some live questions do you have any live questions ask me now okay let me see do you guys have any questions Harshit says area 51 is a tourist destination of aliens well that's what they say it's 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 become a tourist spot you know people go there and there are these signs signboards etc with alien faces on them and you go there and you take pictures with that take selfies and so on and so forth some people camp out at night outside this area 51 beyond the boundary and they try and do some ufo spotting but so far there's been no real evidence you know that these ufos exist amir khan is an alien well show me the proof he does look like an alien but <laughs> we don't have proof of that they even said michael jackson and some other prominent people are aliens but well where is the proof it's it's nice it's humorous but well it's 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 only that isn't it it's only humor uh kapil says what will be the source of energy once humans achieve type 3 civilization status a type 3 akardashiv type 3 civilization so what's a type 1 civilization it's a civilization that is able to control all the resources of its home planet type 2 means you're able to control the resources of your home solar system and type 3 means you're able to control the entire resources of your home galaxy so i would say that if humans can achieve type 3 status it means that we would be able to build a dyson sphere around an entire galaxy so the light heat output of the entire galaxy would be the source of energy of a type 3 civilization okay do we have other questions uh galaxies look stationary then why do scientists say that they rotate i think i've answered this question before but let me take it again so there is something called redshift and blue shift it's the doppler effect when it is applied to light so in the doppler effect when a train is coming towards you and it is blowing its horn or whistle you hear a very high pitched sound but the moment it passes you the sound the the, the frequency of the sound changes it becomes lower in pitch so that is the doppler effect when applied to 
sound waves. Now the same phenomenon is applied, it, it also exists in light waves. So when a light source is coming towards you, its frequencies are, its, its wavelength is compressed and it is, its frequencies look, uh, its colors look bluer. So the, all the frequencies are shifted towards the blue end of the, of the spectrum. That is called blue shift. And when a light source is moving away from you, its uh, frequencies are all red shifted. So when you see a galaxy, which is uh, in the same plane as you, and when when one end of the galaxy is observed, one finds that it is either red shifted or blue shifted. If one end is blue shifted, you find the other end is red shifted. Or if you find this end is red shifted or blue shifted, the other one is red shifted. So you always find that one end of the galaxy, the light, so the, the, the light that comes from it is shifted towards the blue end of the spectrum and the other end is shifted towards the, red, towards the red end of the spectrum. So that tells you that one end of the galaxy is coming towards you, the other one is going away from you. And that is unmistakable evidence of galactic rotation. So that is one of the best ways of, of, of seeing for yourself that galaxies do rotate. And that's how we know that galaxies rotate. How to become a physicist and historian like you? Well, it takes many, many years. It takes decades. You have to study a lot, read a lot. In the case of physics, you have to start with learning mathematics. You have to learn really advanced mathematics to understand physics. So if you, if you put in the hours and if you put in the years in learning mathematics, then physics becomes incredibly easy because mathematics is the language of physics. And when it comes to history, well, I have learned history by, by reading hundreds of books and thousands of articles, research papers, etc. It's, it's, it, it takes years, it takes decades. It's not an easy thing to do. Okay, some more question. Saket says, is our country a secret superpower? Well, if it's a secret, it's a secret. We don't know about it. From what I see, from what I observe, India is not anywhere close to being a superpower. Maybe we are developing some, some capabilities right now, technological, scientific, etc., military capabilities and so on. Perhaps we may be doing it in secret. It is always best to develop such capabilities in secret. Don't tell the world about it. If it is being done, I would be very happy about it. Nobody would be happier than me if we are doing that. But from what we see, from what is known in the open, we are not close to being a superpower or even a regional power. The kind of uh, statements our foreign ministry makes, etc., is that we are aspiring to be a regional power. So, so that tells you where we are today. Of course, you must conceal your capabilities. You must bide your time and hide your capabilities if you are serious about being a great power. So I very much hope it is being done. But if it is a secret, we are not meant to know it. So, so as of today, we are not a superpower. Maybe we are trying to become a secret superpower, which would be a good thing. But I don't see any evidence of that. And maybe with good reason. Okay, some more questions. Maybe one more question. 
how do you remember many historical events and other information well if you are curious if you are interested you remember things when you go and watch a movie which you, which you find very interesting don't you remember everything every last detail so if you have the curiosity about it you will remember things and the more you you read about history the more connections you make inside your subconscious mind about various events that seem to be very far apart so the more you read the more you study the more connections you make the more patterns you see and that's how you remember things and i don't try to memorize dates i know in which century something happened or maybe in which decade something happened but most likely most usually i don't remember the exact dates it is pointless to try and memorize dates because then you are distracting you you are you are not focusing on what's more important which is causality cause and effect so what's more important is to understand why things happen and what are the forces that make things happen historical events right not what date what happened but unfortunately in our in, in education system all we have to do is memorize dates which is a painful thing and it doesn't really give you any, any understanding of why things happen and why and what forces shape the events of the world okay okay one more question we are going towards geopolitics this is supposed to be science is our galaxy rotating around something well our galaxy is rotating around its center of mass around the center of the galaxy and the center of the galaxy is a supermassive black hole which is i think several million solar masses in in mass so that is what it is revolving around around is it orbiting around something we are not very sure we have a local supercluster the virgo supercluster which is a collection a local collection of galaxies several hundred or maybe several thousand galaxies so that is what it is but it we don't know for sure if this collection or cluster of galaxies is orbiting something else we don't know for sure okay one more question i will take one final question somnath asks do you think neanderthals who are sort of extinct now had a role in indian history is it possible they could be vandersena as they looked more like apes i don't know see um they seem to have gone extinct as a distinct species about 20 or 30000 years ago that is the best evidence that we have now i don't know of any evidence of neanderthals in india because we don't do any archaeology we don't do anything so even if the evidence exists somewhere in in india that they may have lived in india at some point in time we have not found it and therefore in the absence of any evidence of fossilized remains or other other remains or artifacts of the neanderthals in the absence of any such evidence from india we cannot say for sure whether they lived in india and if they did live until what time were they alive in india we can't say so in the absence of any form of evidence about it we cannot speculate about whether they have been part of the vanarsena because they look like it we don't know we will know only if we have some evidence uh, 
and we don't even know when the ramayana happened when those events happened it's clearly several thousand years before today maybe the the rama setu can give us some clues if our government will go and when do some dating activity there then we may know when this uh, structure was constructed but as of today it's too un- unambiguous we have very little data so we can't say so unfortunately we don't have the answer to this question it's a good question but we don't have an answer to it as of today okay my friends uh, this brings us to an end of this session thank you so much for all your questions thank you very much and i will see you in the next episode i will see you very soon until then take care thank you very much and have a good day have a good night bye